I have a tattoo on my back. It says amare duro, which means to love hard in Italian. Well, in actuality, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> amare forte is how you'd say it correctly. But I didn't want it to be love strong. I wanted the hard. Corey, my best friend for over two decades, gave me that moniker as a compliment once. He meant it so deeply that he engraved it on a silver bracelet and gave it to me for one of my birthdays. You love so hard, he'd say. So, so hard. He and I got our first tattoos together, and that was mine. Mare duro. One week later from getting that tattoo, I met another Corey, the one most of you are familiar with. That Corey became my wife, and what was once a moniker became a mantra. That was my chance to finally prove that I loved hard. Similar to last episode, I knew I was always going to end the season with this discussion. After all, this season is about what movies teach men about love, and there is no greater lesson than to look in the mirror and reflect on what I, as a person who's been on TV, showed to the world. I turned my analysis on so many others, it seems only fair to hold myself to the same standard. Now, Every week, I'm able to say the truth about my life that I couldn't back then. My name is Casey Bacamini. I was married to an alcoholic for 10 years. It seems like such a simple sentence to say now, but it's not. It's still not an easy thing to admit, despite the fact that my ex has been sober, happy, functioning for a long time. The disease of alcoholism is one of deep shame, and it affects both the drinker and the non-drinker. There are a lot of films out there that deal specifically with addiction. The addict is usually painted in one specific way, the Robert Downey Jr. way. They're a mess. Selfish, self-destructive, unreliable, sick. That's what addiction is, right? It's a sickness. Very little compassion is leveled on the addict. Think about the movie Leaving Las Vegas, right? The Nick Cage film where after a tragedy, he decides to drink himself to death, and he does. And it's really fucking horrifying to watch. I think about Steel Magnolias or Turns of Endearment, where people dying of cancer or diabetes is like a beautiful thing. They're always so peaceful, so calm. Addicts? No. They die in garbage. Vomit stained, cum covered, vile, debased, shameful deaths. And why? Because Hollywood has zero sympathy for addiction. If you think back to episode four, the curious case of Robert Downey Jr., I talk a lot about it. I watched my mom die of diabetes. I watched my father-in-law die of cancer. Neither were beautiful. Both were agonizing, long, confusing, messy. The stories we tell about dying of something other than addiction is that it's brave and tragic. When someone dies from drugs or alcohol, it's shameful. That shame extends to both the addict and non-addict. The first time I ever heard of the program Al-Anon, it was in a movie. It shouldn't shock anybody. <laughs> who's listened to this podcast. The movie was called When a Man Loves a Woman. And while they never say Al-Anon directly, it's made clear in the film that there was a program specifically for people who were married to alcoholics. Like, that was its own place with its own focus. And, you know, this movie, aside from that reason, it's always stuck out to me for a few others. First of all, it is so fucking well acted. Meg Ryan gives the performance of her life as Alice, a woman struggling with addiction. 
She's a great mom. She's a loving wife, but she also has a drinking problem. Andy Garcia plays her husband, and he is a powerhouse as Michael. He's a father and stepfather and a loving husband who is literally just doing his best to keep his family together. The chemistry between them, between Meg Ryan and Andy Garcia, is so palpable, right? Like, in this film, I saw the kind of connection and attraction that I longed for in a partner. Alice and Michael are madly in love. And you can tell every time they look at each other, right? It makes it so easy to root for them. And it's what makes it so heartbreaking when the family disease of alcohol breaks them up. It was the first and maybe the last movie I saw where a man's ability to change the way he loves his wife saves the day. He doesn't blow up a building. He doesn't slay a dragon. He, you know, he doesn't fuck her for hours. He doesn't buy her anything. He commits to being a better person for himself, which allows him the grace to just be present with her, to listen, not to fix, not to control, and not to manage. What I love about this movie is there is equal blame and accountability on the part of both Alice and Michael. I mean, it's called When a Man Loves a Woman, and the way in which that movie addresses love is by showing a man love his wife by accepting that she's sick with a disease of alcohol and that he's powerless over it. And with the help of a community of others going through a similar struggle, loving someone with a sickness, he learns how to stop fixating on something he can't fix and just work on himself trusting that his wife will make the best choices for herself because although she is sick she's fully capable of taking accountability of herself and her disease it's truly a remarkable journey in the film when two people are so desperately in love and life hands them challenges that they manage themselves because it's meant to be because they truly belong with one another their healing brings them back together naturally This film always reminds me of my mom and dad. Julie and Paul were a lot like Alice and Michael. They were insanely in love. They had two kids, the youngest named Casey, and they were torn apart because of things related to the family disease of alcoholism, namely, untreated Al-Anon. They never got a chance to really heal that, so I'll never know if, in their healing, they would have come back together. Although I do know from talking to my dad, that even nine years after her death, he can only really remember the good parts of his marriage to my mom. And that says something to me about their love. Ironically, despite the fact that I was married to an alcoholic, this movie doesn't remind me of my own marriage. Namely, because the more each one of us is healed, the further apart we've drifted. For those of you who don't know, I was on a reality TV show called The Real L Word, seasons two and three. At the time of filming, I was married to a woman named Corey, and we were trying to start a family. People loved us. They saw a sweet, normal couple going through a very tumultuous and difficult experience together, but who loved and supported one another. I was cast as a faithful husband who gave my wife a strong foundation for which to stand when our worlds fell apart from disappointment after disappointment. I always had a smile on my face. Or if I was crying, I was able to articulate perfectly whatever emotional storyline anyone needed. Wouldn't didn't show was Corey's struggle with alcohol, nor my untreated Al-Anon. That veneer of a happy, supportive couple, upon further inspection, 
was me clearly managing, performing, hiding, or making light of a very real specter of the disease of alcoholism in my life at the time. The version of us everyone saw on TV was not a storybook romance, but two people whose hurts mirrored one another. No. It's not to say that we didn't try to love one another, that, that in any way that was a performance of love. We were married. There were times when we were happy. But as we each started to step into our own individual power and break away from patterns of behaviors that hurt us, the more we turned away from each other. No matter the circumstance, trying and healing always come to a head. When you're raised in a family of alcoholism, your world becomes colored through the lens of the disease. Your thinking becomes a symptom of their disease and therefore your life becomes about managing someone else and not yourself. There's a saying, alcoholics drink, Al-Anons think. It's codependent, it's toxic. It's harmful to both the drinker and the non-drinker. Also, just like alcoholism, you can pass down generational untreated Al-Anon because it fosters a type of behavior or expectation. People-pleasing, shame, guilt responses, lack of boundaries, hyper-focus, control issues, judgment, criticism, ugh. All of these are symptoms of untreated Al-Anon. And, ugh, it is no fucking fun. It is no fun. What's interesting is that this legacy is shown in the movie When a Man Loves a Woman in one of the most heartbreaking scenes. So in the film, Alice is already at the rehab center, Now, Michael is left home to manage the household, the two kids, and his job as a pilot. So he's putting away clean towels, and he finds a vodka bottle hidden in a drawer. And suddenly he realizes that there might actually be more throughout his house. So he goes on this hunt and, you know, tries to look for all the places his wife Alice has stashed this booze. So he grabs every single bottle of alcohol in the house and makes his way to the trash cans out front. And as he's tossing them in the cans, Jess, his oldest daughter, who I think is about eight at the time, comes up behind him and instructs him on how to properly hide the evidence that an alcoholic lives here. You have to wrap them in paper, she says. That's when Michael realizes that the disease is not exclusive to Alice. Everyone suffers, regardless of whether or not they know it. I didn't know I was raised in a household affected by the family disease of alcohol at all. I didn't know it because no one ever talked openly about the alcoholic in my family, who was my grandfather. See, he died when my mom was 17, in their house. Now, everyone always said it was from a heart attack, but what they didn't say was that it was an alcohol-induced heart attack. He was only 57 years old. He left five kids, a wife, a mortgage, and just like that, He became a ghost in our family, shrouded in shame, but the echo of his disease rang loud for decades to come. My behaviors and my marriage, my behaviors up until I I started Al-Anon almost three years ago, were textbook untreated Al-Anon. I mean, textbook. Not unlike the conversation I had with Elizabeth, once I was able to name these traits, I could see them, you know, as something that was separate than myself. I was able to see that I was drawn to partners with drinking problems because they reminded me of home. It felt comfortable, and that comfort was inextricably linked to my understanding of connection and love, because that's how it works. Classic Al-Anon traits are controlling and manipulating situations to predict or protect something 
or someone scolding, nagging, nitpicking somebody else's choices to drink or how much to drink or not to drink or lying or making light of actions or behaviors of someone else because you fear how others might see them. And finally, taking on the responsibilities of someone else's life or burden yourself in neglect of your own issues and needs. If it sounds a lot like codependence, it's because it is. Alcoholics have a drinking problem. Al-Anons have a thinking problem. It's a sickness of the mind. Of trying to control something out of our control, which is another person. Another person's behavior making you sick. That's like the most <laughs> codependent statement I've ever heard. And yet, I did this. God, I did this over and over and over and over for four decades. Because I didn't know that there was another way to love. I didn't know that there was a world where I could have a full life, a full range of emotions and feelings, all my hopes and dreams, regardless if the person I was with was drinking. That all changed when I walked into Al-Anon. My Al-Anon birthday is July 25th, 2020. It's considered a birthday of sorts when your life starts over. July 25th was actually my wedding anniversary. And it's funny, I didn't mean it for it to be a coincidence. But in actuality, it makes a lot of sense as to why I would find myself needing to commemorate that day, right? And reframe it as something just for me. I have another tattoo on my right forearm. That's a line from a chick song called Lullaby. Life began when I saw your face. I got it because that was the song Corey walked down the aisle to on our wedding day. But now, it represents the clarity I saw the first time I looked in the mirror and saw the real me looking back. The me who realized I'm trans. The me who realized there was a better way to live, love, exist. The me who realized that the only person I needed to love hard was me. When a man loves a woman concludes with both Alice and Michael each taking responsibility for their actions and coming together for one of the most, God, romantic and passionate on-screen kisses ever filmed. I have watched that kiss so many times, and I have longed for a love as passionate and intimate and connected as they have. Two people who love each other so much that they're willing to do the work of healing themselves so that they can love one another better. It's honestly the most perfect example of love I've ever come across in a film. And so, because of that fact, I'm going to use it as a template. I'm going to recast and recreate a beloved Hollywood film that uses the old story of how men should love women and discuss how this new template can be applied to change the story while still making a great film. The ending of the book, The Will to Change, Bell Hook says... The work of male relational recovery, of reconnection, of forming intimacy and making community can never be done alone. In a world where boys and men are daily losing their way, we must create guides, signposts, and new paths. A culture of healing that empowers males to change is in the making. Healing does not take place in isolation. Men who love and men who long to love know this. We need to stand by them with open hearts and open arms. We need to stand ready to hold them, offering a love that can shelter their wounded spirits 
as they seek to find their way home, as they exercise their will to change. As a filmmaker and as a man who knows a thing or two about change, I am uniquely positioned to craft stories that create this space for men. So here's my first offering. As promised to Eric, my beloved creative producer, I offer you a new film in the Die Hard series, a prequel called Love Hard. Interior, Nakatomi building, night. A Christmas party is in full swing. John, 30s, ruggish hot, walks into a party and immediately spots Holly, 30s, corporate hot. They cross the room toward each other and embrace, a tight embrace. A longing exists between them. They separate for a beat, looking at one another. John takes in the office around her, impressed. He whistles. John, this is some swanky party, Ms. Gennaro. Holly pulls him closer, face to face. She kisses him passionately, deeply. A long, deep kiss. Holly, wait until you see the after party, Mr. McLean. They smile. She pulls him into her office to get cleaned up. They have a quickie, passionate, hungry. She gives him a present, a gold Rolex watch to celebrate her bonus. He makes a joke that people will think he stole it. They laugh. They clean up together, and he joins her at the party, meeting all her co-workers, seeing how much they love and respect her, them all adoring him because he's interesting and somehow soft for an NY City cop. Now, this opening beat changes the shape of the entire relationship in the film Die Hard, right? But this is Love Hard. And frankly, it adds so many dimensions to their characters and so much strength. John is a rugged New York City cop. That's who he is. Great. But imagine if he's confident enough in himself and his identity that he knows his wife Holly can also pursue her dreams and they can still have a successful marriage, even if it takes her moving to California. He knows how to care for himself. Thusly, he doesn't need her to play the traditional role of housekeeper, cook, and caretaker that other women have been subjected to. He's a different kind of man, one who loves his wife for the person she is, not the comfort and care she provides him. He loves and craves her as a woman. He doesn't need or rely on her like a mother. This changes everything because instead of John being alone in the office when the robbers enter, he's with her. They're together. And that dynamic of a husband and a wife facing those obstacles together is far more interesting to me. It's not dramatic. It's psychodynamic, which is rich with potential. For example, Takagi. Holly's boss would still probably be killed, right? Nothing about the structure of the actual bank robbery would need to change. What would change, though, is the dynamic of the hostages. With Holly in charge, this would give John the opportunity to see her leadership, right? She could ensure that everyone stays calm and give John intel about what's in the bank vault, right? What Hans and team might be after. So that means together, they would suss things out. John can give her insight into the tactical plans of the bank robbers, what they are doing, how they're organized, who's the weakest link, etc. Now, this would create a much better setup of exposition because you can watch as two people both strategize a situation from two different but equal life perspectives, male versus female, procedural versus professional, corporate versus government. It has so many more layers, okay? 
And you remember Al, the lovable cop who nurses John through pain and isolation of his situation in Die Hard? Well, now that role would fall to Holly, right? John and Holly would have intimacy based on a shared experience, a fear, of courage, of surviving. Their intimacy would be based on their ability to stay present in the situation, listening to one another, working as a team, equality, both partners contributing. I mean, true intimacy between a husband and a wife. Come on, give it to me. Ugh, jeez. Now, look, there would still be violence. Lord knows the havoc they would have created. Holly could have snuck John into the bathroom, and that's how he could have crawled through the air conditioning shaft to check out the rest of the building. Henchmen could have still died. And the scene where they try to blow up everyone on the rooftop, that could be rewritten slightly so that John, in the moment, realizes what's happening. And when he jumps into action mode, because he has no alternative, he doesn't die, or they'll all die if he doesn't act, he doesn't act alone. Because he's built the trust and relationships with the other hostages, and because Holly loves him and trusts him completely, they all help. So he's not fighting alone, right? Now he's leading them as a team. So ultimately, because this is an action movie, we would of course get to that final standoff with Hans, okay? We still have this dynamic of Holly and John being tested, right? Because of course, He's the end bad guy, and end bad guys always need an insurance policy to get what they need. So, of course, he could find a way to grab Holly and hold her hostage. But, in Love Hard, right, she's not just the wife of the guy ruining their plan. She's the highest ranking bank official at the party. The stakes are doubled because, you know, uh, of who she is to John, but also what she represents to Hans. Holly would then be more than likely to be put in like a Takagi-like scenario with her life, you know, it's not accidentally threatened. It would be directly threatened. But the kicker would be, Hans would totally take John. <laughs> like, John would be the one with the gun to his head, forcing Holly to make a decision about what to do, right? But Holly and John would know a secret that Hans doesn't. She's the wife of a police officer, so of course, she knows how to handle a gun. John taught her before she left for California, just in case. So in Love Hard, Holly shoots the Hansman and Hans. And when he stumbles back, John goes with him. He has John by the gold watch given to him as a present by Holly. So she reaches down and releases that, sending Hans sailing towards his demise. I mean, come on. Love Hard is a heart-pounding thrill ride of an action movie about a husband and a wife who work together to rescue a building full of hostages. This is a feminist action film. It gives both parties full agency to be their best selves and it still be engaging, entertaining, and watchable. When you have characters that come at their lives from a place of strength and love, you get better characters and storylines. It doesn't mean they won't face challenges. It means that when they face them, you experience a higher rush with bigger stakes because when you started in love, it's a much worthier reason to risk your fucking life. Oh, I'd watch the shit out of that movie. Hell, I might even just go write it just so I can make it, just so I can watch the shit out of it. The point is this. There is a way to tell great stories without it being steeped in patriarchy. Stories about cis men loving cis women that are radical and that they allow for whole depictions of complex people living in their own truth and loving each other from a place of personal agency. That's not a myth. 
I just did it. You just heard it. And if you're like, wait a minute, I missed that. Go back and listen to it again. Like, broken men are not the most interesting. Whole, complex men who still manage to be loving. That is the motherfucking gold right there. It is what I strive for in the movies that I write. And what I aspire to be in the way that I live. I want to be a good man. And I know that it starts by being a good me. That's literally the point. Thank you for bearing with this very long season of The Stories We Tell, a podcast about the way we read movies. I'd like to thank this opportunity to thank all of my guests this season, AJ, James, Grant, Eric, Elizabeth, Natasha, and of course, my dad, Dr. Paul Bacamini. Also, a special shout out to all the friends who gave me voice notes. I didn't air all of them, but I listened intently, and I think I brought the spirit of all of those notes into the season as best that I could. Lastly, I'd like to thank two women who are no longer with us, but without whom this entire season wouldn't exist. The first is, of course, the illustrious Bell Hooks. The second, my mom, Julie. I'm going to be taking a break to go make my directorial debut with a short film I wrote in 2022. All this talk about love had a point. I wrote an 80s-style romantic comedy called Last First Kiss, and it's my love letter to that little boy inside who saw all these messages in movies and came to the conclusion that love wasn't something he was ever going to have access to. So, I wrote a movie where people like me find love. I couldn't be more excited to bring my template to Hollywood. Ugh, I literally can't wait. So until next time, listeners, this is Casey Bacamini, your host of The Stories We Tell, a podcast about the way we read movies, asking you to please watch carefully.